Welcome to Islam for Christians. This is episode 123, Islamic History, year 625, the Battle of Uhud, part 2. There are many, 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 many drawbacks to fighting a battle on your own territory. For one, the stakes are higher. And the stakes could be, in the end, everything. And in the event that you actually win, the result could still be devastating. Uh, take Vietnam, for example. They fought the French and the Americans, and then just for the heck of it, the Chinese. Now they won, but how did that go for the people? for the land, for the resources, for the society. They won, but it was just horrible at such an extreme cost. Now, in history, there are varying degrees of this kind of thing, uh, just depending on the opponent. And in our case, it's unknown what the Meccans would have done if they had ever actually overrun Medina. but. As far as any Muslims were concerned, this was potentially a life-ending, society-ending war, a Russia in 1941 type of situation. And maybe not in the same ways. The Meccans weren't going on a genocidal campaign or anything, but for the thing that they cared about the most in this city, in this society, Islam. This would have been a genocidal campaign for their religion. Islam would cease to be. So, in that way, there were no terms with the enemy. There wasn't a whole lot of negotiating you could do. You either win, or your entire group of people will cease to exist. But there are some upsides to fighting at home. Most notably, from a tactical point of view, you know the terrain intimately. You know every little hill and pocket of land. And that would come into play heavily in the Battle of Uhud. Now, when they got to where they chose to make their camp, Perhaps the Meccans thought Muhammad would actually just march out to meet them where they were. But if the Muslims had actually done that, if they had tried to just put themselves between the Meccans and the city of Medina, the battle would have been quite simple, and it would have been on an open plain. And that would have been very, very stupid, because the cavalry would have cut them to shreds. But instead the Medinans used their knowledge of the terrain, and they used it very well, and decided to park their army to the northeast of Mecca's army. Now, this looks unusual on a map, because it basically gives the Meccans a free ride into the city if they wanted it. And perhaps that had something to do with the 300 troops that returned to Medina? We don't know for sure. But really... I think the Meccans had little interest in Medina, the city. And 
this was something the Muslims were able to take advantage of. Um, they didn't even pretend to be preparing for a siege. They went past the army almost to a good spot to fight because I think they figured and correctly that the Meccans had literal interest in Medina, the actual city. They didn't want Medina, the city. They wanted Muhammad, the prophet and his followers and the destruction of their military power. And so as it turned out, Mecca would turn and fight Muhammad on the spot he had chosen again. And the Muslims would make great use of that again. Okay, so back to knowing the terrain. Now, this spot that the Muslims chose was at the foot of a mountain named Uhud, which gives the battle its name. They put their backs to the mountains, which would narrow the battlefield considerably. Now, think of this as kind of like a, a diamond. I'd look at an actual map when you can. It's really not that hard to find, but for the purposes of a, a mental map here, think of the diamond. The upper left and upper right lines would be Mount Uhud. And then the two lower lines represent the maneuverable terrain, uh, the opening where the battle would take place. But the key here, well, aside from the mountain behind them, is what is in the middle of the lower left line and the lower right line, the bottom point of the diamond. Where those lines intersect, if this was a baseball diamond, it would be home plate. And right there at the bottom point was a small kind of a rocky hill. And if you place enough archers on that hill, it can prevent any quick flanking maneuvers, particularly from cavalry. And one more quick reference for those who know baseball, and this might be easier. Just imagine the entire outfield as mountains and home plate as a small hill, or even the pitcher's mount, which is a hill anyway. All right. From now on, we'll just use the terms west side and east side, referring to the two openings and the hill for the hill in the middle. So on the Muslim side, Muhammad positioned his infantry on the west side. That would be their right, the way the Muslims would be facing. You know, on a map, they'd be going down. The Meccans would be going up. All right. So Muhammad positions his infantry on the west opening. And then he retreats to a little cul-de-sac uh, to the north with his personal guard, kind of leaving the right side open which made the archers on the hill immensely critical. Now, the archers, their job was to make sure that no one, and by no one, I pretty much just mean the cavalry, they had to prevent anyone from swinging around to open a second front and break the lines. So, basically, Muhammad had managed to weave a kind of Thermopylae situation, you know, the 300 Spartans at this narrow pass. Um, he was able to narrow the battlefield to the point that they could actually hide their numbers, so to speak. They could make use of their numbers. Now, obviously, 
this was different. This isn't 300 Spartans <laughs> narrowing the battlefield against something like 10,000 or what was it? A hundred thousand, a whole lot of Persians. But this was more precarious too, <laughs> because the Spartans, well, at least in, until they were betrayed, th there was no way around. Okay. But here the, the obvious way around was simply going to that place that the archers were covering. But as long as those archers stayed there, the Muslim infantry only had to deal with that single front and continue to fight only on that one front. And in that case, they probably liked their chances to attrit the Meccans through superior individual battle skills. So this was a matter of force concentration in so many ways. The Muslims had to keep the force concentration even and in one place. It was their only chance with their inferior numbers. They had to keep things narrow. If they didn't, the Meccans, because of their numbers, could maintain a similar force concentration on the main line, but then disperse their forces to other places, making the Muslim position untenable. In short, the Muslims needed to keep the west side fortified and the east side inaccessible. And another useful way to think of this battle is that there are basically five groups taking part. And when the battle starts, these five are basically independent units. And this will be important. So there are two parts for the Meccans and three parts for the Muslims. Here are the five groups I would suggest thinking about, you know, when uh, analyzing this battle. Now, first we have the two Meccan groups. Number one, the main Meccan army. This would end up on the west side of the diamond, the west opening. They were commanded by Ikrima ibn Abu Jal. Ibn Abu Jal. And yes, that would be the son of the famous Abu Jal, who died in the last battle. Now, this group under his leadership was about 3,000 men, maybe a little less. And then number two of the Meccan army. Remember, the Meccans have two parts. Muslims have three parts. The Meccan cavalry would be part number two, the second unit. This was 200 horses. And this cavalry unit was commanded by Khalid ibn al-Walid. Spoiler alert, this guy would go on to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest general in the history of Islam. At least early Islam. We're not talking Saladin or anything like that. Actually, both of the commanders of these two Meccan forces at Uhud would command Muslim armies for quite a while. And if you're wondering where Abu Sufyan is in all of this, he's more of a political leader than an actual general. You know, he's not arrogant enough to actually take tactical command of a battle. 
And then on the other side, we have the Muslim forces, three units. So group number three, Muhammad and his personal guard. These were about 50 people who were assigned to protect Muhammad. And really, at this point, it's quite obvious that the Meccans would love to just kill Muhammad and get this over with. <laughs> you know, previous pretexts, we went over this several times in many episodes. You know, gosh, should we kill Muhammad? Should we not kill Muhammad? No, that was completely gone by this point. They just wanted to kill him if they could. So he wasn't going to be on the front lines like Hamza or Ali. Muhammad and his guard were at the northernmost point in a small niche with only one small opening up against the mountain. Then there's group number four, the Medinan army proper, the regulars. <laughs> Not really regulars, I just kind of think of them that way. But this is basically the Medinan army, the main unit. And this is about 600 people, if you take away those guarding Muhammad and those in the final group in this battle. By the way, I'm not counting the 300 that went back to Medina. You know, they're out. You could argue, hey, that's that's a sixth group, but um, they didn't end up being terribly important in the end. So that's group number four, the Medinan army, and then group number five, the smallest, well, actually not the small, about the same size as Muslim's personal guard, but the most important, uh, at least on the Medinan side, on the Muslim side of this battle. Group number five, those 50 archers on the hill, the people who are covering the eastern opening and making it inaccessible. So the battle had been set up. It's March 23rd, 625, Anu Domini. The Meccans have 3,000 men. 700 armored, 200 horses. And the Muslims have, after the 300 which rode home, about 700 men, 100 with armor, and no horses. However, they were in a very solid position defensively. The archers were standing in a somewhat dominant position on their hill, and like I mentioned before, they were the key to this whole thing. And for whatever reason, the Meccans never chose to charge those 500 men and open up the battlefield. I really think they had the numbers to do that, but it never happened. I don't know why exactly. When you think of the archers, just think of them pinning down the 200 cavalrymen, um, making them useless to the battle. Um, but if they weren't doing that, those 200 guys on horses, they would love nothing better than to swing around the east opening and attack the Muslim army from the rear. And according to Muslim sources, the orders given to those 50 archers on the hill, they were extremely clear. This is from the Ibn Ishaq history. Whether we are winning or losing, you stay where you are. If you see us plundering a defeated army and wish to have a share of it, stay where you are. If you see us dying and want to help us, stay where you are. 
Now, those words came directly from Muhammad, in the histories at least. Remember those words. They're so important. He was telling them, quite literally, this is your hill to die on. So at this point, someone needed to make a move. And as far as I can tell, it looks like the Meccans made the first move in this battle. And they crossed a dry river valley to get to the Muslim army. And from all indications, the Meccans were moving slightly uphill. So, yeah, the Muslims stayed where they were in a great defensive position, and the Meccans came to them. So, the Meccans advance, they get within shouting distance, and Abu Sufyan attempted to persuade the Al-Zanq Hazraj men to go home. And that didn't work, but it was certainly worth a try. Now, the Meccan women... They were advancing with the army, in the rear, and singing and beating drums. And once the army stopped, a Meccan named Talha stepped forward, and he challenged someone, anyone, to meet him in single combat. Of course, looking back, this was kind of a stupid thing to do, because people who do this against Muslim armies, they tended to die very quickly, and this was no exception. You know, sure enough, Ali steps up and cuts this guy down. And apparently, he had gone out with his clan's banner, the person Ali had killed. So, this guy's brother steps up to retrieve the banner, and Hamza kills him. And this process kept repeating itself. And by the end, a handful of Muslims had killed eight or nine men from one clan, mostly fathers and sons. Um, And remember what I said about the women? They got to see all of this. So all those dead men, their mothers were there at the battlefield. It's really ugly stuff. And then, depending who you ask, the Muslims may have beat back an initial cavalry charge. Or they didn't. (laughs) But then the armies charged each other. And by armies, I mean only two groups that we talked about earlier. The Meccan army proper and these 600 or so Muslim infantry. As the two armies engaged in battle, you know, keep in mind this is more of a German forest type of battle than a Greek or a Roman one. There's no phalanxes. There's there's no tight lines here. This is basically just people finding someone and trying to kill them but still maintaining some kind of order, some kind of cohesion. It wasn't a free-for-all, but any great ancient commander from the Greco-Roman world would have been appalled at the lack of order. So, there's this chaotic scene, and people hacking at each other, and wandering through the crowds, and... In all of this, there are two people that just don't seem like they should be there. Now, one of these people is Hind, the wife of Abu Sufyan and relative of many Meccans killed at Badr. Apparently, she was a larger woman, and she was almost killed when she was mistaken for a man. But that soldier, apparently, 
He didn't kill her for some reason, and that, that's noble, I guess. But hey, if that's me, if someone's on a battlefield and that person is not on my team, it's probably better to kill first and ask questions later. He's lucky he didn't get knifed in the back. But anyway, she lived, as did the other wandering person, her employee, the Abyssinian slave who was very handy with the spear. He also wandered through the crowd, and no one thought to kill him or didn't have a chance. And this guy eventually found Hamza. Now, Hamza is not a difficult man to find, even among a few thousand people. He's a larger man, and he always wore an ostrich feather on his chest. If you watch the movie The Message, uh, Anthony Quinn, he has this weird fuzz on his armor. That's the ostrich feather, or feathers. So this Abyssinian slave, he finds Hamza, and he throws his javelin or spear or whatever. And it either went through his armor, Hamza, I mean, it either went through Hamza's armor, or as some stories go, it was thrown into an unguarded spot when Hamza raised his hands to kill someone. And either way, it was a fatal blow, and certainly a blow to the Muslim army. So before this moment, when Hamza becomes an early Muslim martyr, I can't even imagine what his body count had been to that point. But it was huge. And his contribution is, is hard to overstate. But the Muslims from now on would have to go on without their best or their second best warrior. Now, arguably, he was the most respected too, uh, if not the most fierce. So this was a massive hit to the Muslim army. But when it happened, it was pretty much the only bad thing happening to the Muslims at the time. Because the strategy, the choice of this spot, it was really paying off. They had a roughly even front against the Meccans, it seemed, and they were slowly pushing them down the incline to the southwest and away from Mount Uhud. So even those in the back could see the motion of the army as they appeared to be moving and going forward and cutting the enemy to bits. They could see the white plume of Ali and the red and the green and the yellow turbans of their other leaders. So despite the loss of Hamza, this battle was becoming a rout. The Meccans were being pushed back so far, they found themselves near their own camp. And by now, Muhammad was just way too far back to see what was actually happening. Uh, remember, he was still at the northernmost point in his little mountain cul-de-sac. But he was still in that position and kind of blinded to what was going on. While his main army had pushed so far southwest, he couldn't see them over the little bit of mountain that was protecting his spot. So in what was about to happen, Muhammad wouldn't really be playing much of a part in it. But to those who were there, in the thick of it, 
This was a rout. Victory was at hand. It seemed pretty obvious that the battle was over. So now, in the minds of many, this was the time for looting, for plunder. Not just taking valuables off of dead soldiers, but the camp. The camp was right there. It was unguarded. And remember, this was no Spartan military camp. The Meccans had brought half their city with them to see this, and all the luxury goods that would have been transported on those thousands of camels that made the trip. So, shifting from battle mode to plunder mode, the soldiers who could went after the camp, and anyone who could see the situation, well, they did the same. And, unfortunately for the Muslims, among the many who could see the situation developing, that included the 50 archers who were on top of that critical, critical hill. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.